Well, as you're making your way back to your seats, let's go ahead and turn together this morning to the Gospel of Mark. We have been in Luke's Gospel, as you know, for some time, but today in the beginning of Lent, I want to just take a quick detour over into Mark's Gospel and read an accompanying account. So we'll look in Mark chapter 9 this morning. And we'll read verses 30 through 37. It's also printed for you there in the bulletin on page 6. But again, Mark 9, reading verses 30 through 37 together. Mark writes, They went on from there, that is the disciples and Jesus, they went on from there and passed through Galilee, And Jesus did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. They did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, Oh, oh, by the way, you can kind of... Notice Jesus' little intentional curiosity. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. You can feel their faces become a little bit flushed there, can't you? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with each other about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And Jesus took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God, it stands forever and ever. Amen. As I mentioned at the beginning of our service, today is the first Sunday of Lent. As you know, it began earlier in our week with Ash Wednesday. But the word Lent, which you probably know, is simply just taken from the Latin word for spring. But the the period of time in early church traditions became associated and still is today with the, the 40 days which lead us up to Easter Sunday. And even there, as you know, that number 40 has always sort of held, you know, a a place of prominence in the imagination of the Christian and scripture. There are the 40 days of the flood, which we began to look at even this morning in our Sunday school class, which were, were in Genesis, as you know. And so today we began to look at the flood, the 40 days of the flood. There's 40 years in the wilderness. And of course, Christ and his own temptation is in the wilderness, tempted for 40 days. And so it is that Lent then, as the 40 days which lead us up to Easter, is marked, like we even talked about in our call to worship, is marked by this intentional refocus on Christ's own posture of self-denial and sacrifice. It's something that you see, again, in the temptation account of Christ, which we will look at in time, but of course see fully at the cross. 
the sacrificial, self-denying posture that we then are called as his followers to also take in our lives. Take up your cross and follow me, Jesus says. That this, this posture of sacrifice and self-denial that we, again, as those who bear his name, Christians, are called to emulate in our own lives. We don't sacrifice or deny one's self in order for Jesus to then accept us or for Jesus to then do something for us, but rather as a result of what he has done. It's a posture of response. While we were yet sinners, we're told, Christ died for us. We now again respond in kind. We respond out of the work that he has done. We prepare our hearts, again, leading up to Easter where his glorious crucifixion and resurrection are celebrated most poignantly. Well, today in this particular passage, again, with sort of these uh, Lenten dynamics on our minds, we see three things in today's passage. If you notice in these verses, there is confusion on the part of the disciples There's contrast, then there is a call. There's confusion, there's contrast, and there's a call. So look at that first one with me. The confusion that we see there is in verses 31 and 32. We've all been in a situation before, you know, maybe it's as a kid on the ball field, you know, not knowing where to stand uh, on the diamond if you're new to baseball or if you're on a volleyball team, not, am I in the front, am I in the back, where am I supposed to go? You know, maybe it's as a kid on the ball field with a coach or maybe as a kid, you know, doing something with your parents, learning how to do something. My dad was an electrician and so good with his hands, he could fix anything, still can fix anything. Unfortunately, uh, I guess I'm the son of him, right? The son of the master, right? I inherited none of his gifts for whatever reason. Uh, I'm book smart, not not real smart, you know, uh, as as they say. But again, maybe, you know, growing up, watching my dad do things, again, a kid on the ball field. Maybe it was in your first job, you know, early on as an apprentice or an intern or whatever. We, We come to these places in our lives where we don't really know how to do something. And we're confused. But in order for us to save face, we can't actually bring ourselves to admit that confusion. We can't bring ourselves to actually admit where we need help because of our pride or our ego. Again, or in order to keep up appearances or or our status or whatever it might be. Well, this is the position here of the disciples, particularly in these early verses. Verses 31 and 32. Though they've been with Jesus this long, and though they've been called by him and and seen amazing things time and time again, miracle after miracle, including some of the very verses which precede this passage, as Jesus draws near to Jerusalem, and we've been been pondering that, that approach to Jerusalem in our time in Luke's gospel, as Jesus continues to draw nearer and nearer to Jerusalem and sets his face towards the cross, he begins to speak more plainly about his ultimate purpose. 
He speaks more and more about what everything that he has done previously, again, including these miracles, including his, his, his teaching times, what all of these things he's done previously are intended to point forward to. He, he speaks more and more like he does there in verse 31. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But you see, because this ultimate purpose of Jesus is at this, at this point in time still foreign to them, and it doesn't fit their preconceived notions of Messiah, they're confused. To go back to my, my golden doodle, you know, in our time of confession, they look at him with that kind of tilted head. You know, you know when you try to talk to a dog and it's almost like he's trying to understand you and he tilts his head and it's so funny? That's what they look at Jesus the same way. He talks about being killed and being delivered, suffering, all of these things. And they look at him with, with, with tilted head like he's out of his mind. Verse 32 says what? They did not understand, but what? Were afraid to ask. They were, they were embarrassed, perhaps even. They were afraid to ask. And of course, we know the reasons why. The disciples here thought a Messiah would be more like a monarch, an earthly monarch. Isn't this guy the, the son of David? Well, who was David? Well, David was a mighty king. Doesn't Jesus claim to have the wisdom of Solomon? In fact, something greater than Solomon is here? Well, who was Solomon? Well, Solomon was the, the greatest of kings, an empire of the greatest prosperity, peace over his enemies. He was the, the greatest of kings, the time of greatest prosperity for the nation. Isn't this man Yeshua? Isn't he Joshua, really, as it's rendered? Well, who was Joshua, well, he was the one who led conquest over his enemies, who conquered the promised land, the very land that they now dispossess and are under the thumb of another. What is this nonsense about the Son of Man, the greater one to come, who has come, being delivered, being killed? You see, their perspective was off. And so, too, then, if we notice, was their posture. Because they thought the Messiah came to simply deal with those out there, their Gentile enemies, their Gentile overlords, the bad guys out there, the troublemakers, the Romans, the really bad and nasty characters, because they thought this way, they couldn't yet see their own need for saving. They couldn't yet see the greatest need they had, again, wasn't from enemies without, deliverance from enemies without, but deliverance from the enemy within, namely their sin. And how was that to come about? Well, through atonement. And how is atonement made? In the Old Testament? In the system that they are accustomed to, and even in the new, the greater, how is atonement made through the sacrifice of a perfect, spotless lamb? John the Baptist heralded, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, a world which includes us, and a world which we helped 
to break. We see that in our Sunday school class right now in Genesis. We see it here even with the disciples and their ignorance, their disobedience. We see this in their confusion over exactly why Jesus had come and the method in which he would employ. But if you notice in the text, after the confusion, there then is this contrast. There's a contrast, and we see it in verses 33 and 34 in the topic, if you will, or the content that the disciples are discussing on the heels of their confusion. Notice the the contrast here between what they're talking about and, and who Christ actually is and why he came. This passage is not very flattering for the disciples. They, they often aren't. They're confused, again, but, but afraid to speak up. And so Jesus here observes their silence. He notices their, their silence. But then in those, in those very next verses, their conversation... Again, when, when pressed on it, is embarrassing. Again, he's like that parent who, who's around the corner and, and hears his son or daughter, not mine, of course, hears them use foul language. Oh, my goodness, that's never happened in my house. Or it's, you know, remember when you actually used real phones, not cell phones, and you could pick up one, one of the phones in one room and hear your, you know, brother or sister on the other line or whatever, right? This is Jesus as he, as he listens, if you notice, and hears their discussion. And not only is their discussion, of course, off base, like we've noticed, but we have to believe in the moment they then even begin to realize that. They kind of feel the contrast, if you will, between what they're talking about, jockeying for position, and what Jesus was talking about just a moment ago, his suffering. They're talking about their success, their, their position, and Jesus has been talking about his suffering and his sacrifice. The very next verse, again, after Christ's words, they're talking about who among them will be number one. There is this tone deafness. There's this social miscue and unawareness here. There's this contrast like I've said, between the utter humility of Christ, his sacrificial posture, his selflessness, and the pride and selfishness, his selflessness and the pride and selfishness of the disciples. And if you begin to feel that contrast and hear that contrast, then you have begun to understand the point of Lent. It's that contrast that, that drives why we take the time we do in the Lenten season to focus on these dynamics. For Lent highlights this ever-present human dilemma between God's priorities and ours. We need this constant reminder that we are called to be congruent with Christ and his priorities, especially if we are his, and not in contrast. If one does fully understand the depths of Christ's sacrifice and love, then what happens? A life which reflects that. But if one does not, like the disciples here clearly do not in this moment, then our lives are marked by what? Well, they're marked in kind. If we do not understand the sacrifice and selflessness of Christ, which in this moment they don't, then our lives 
are usually marked by a selfishness and a lust, a, a, a clutching, a disconnect arises, and we look in contrast to Jesus, not congruence. But when one does come to fully understand his sacrifice and the depths of his sacrifice, like the disciples do later, then our lives are a mirror for those things. Think about the transformation of one like Peter, even, who jockeys for, for position and prominence, always putting his foot in his mouth, but then will who become a great preacher of the gospel, one who wants to be crucified upside down because he's unworthy to even die like his Savior. Wow, what a change, right? What a change. And so the question for us in the season of Lent is, how about you and I? Is there a disconnect present like the one we see here with the disciples? Survey your own life as I do mine. Perhaps wanting Jesus to be Jesus on your terms, just like they want him to be Messiah on their terms. The king who will vanquish our enemies, the king who will put us on the throne next to him, the king who will satisfy every personal and, and temporal and, and earthly desire that we have? Or do we receive Jesus on his own terms with the eyes of faith? Who again, instead of trying to squeeze him into our plans, we align our lives and postures and priorities to his. The Jesus who came a suffering servant to meet our greatest need. Again, the need of atonement and reconciliation who came to exchange your unrighteousness for his righteousness and did so at great cost to himself. So that again, in response to such love, we would take our eyes off ourselves and we would live as the servants that we're called to be. That we would embody a similar selfless love as again, we align our lives and priorities with his, not the other way around. I'm not a big fan of of Christian bumper stickers in general, mostly because a lot of them are so cliche, mostly because it's hard to get good theology, you know, in like eight inches of space, right? It requires more nuance than that. Or in my case, I'm a terrible driver. I'm very aggressive and I drive very fast, so I don't want to be a bad witness, okay, with a fish on my car. So that's actually a confession I'm making, not really, a, not really an, uh, an admonishment, okay? But not, not a big fan of Christian bumper stickers in general. There's just very few, few of them that are good, okay? One of them I'm not, not, not particularly in love with, and I'm going to risk the, you know, I might offend somebody, so I hope you don't have this in your car, but the one that says, Jesus is my co-pilot. Jesus is my co-pilot. I get the idea, right? But what does that imply? We're the pilot, right? He's next to us in the cockpit, but we're really the one, you know, the co-pilot, you know, it's like, it's like assistant manager, right? Uh, he, we're the manager, he's the, the assistant manager, not a big fan of that one. Why? Because Christ is the one, as we see, who flies the plane. He is the one who drives the ship. We are called to align our lives to his, not the other way around. And you see that with the disciples, trying to fit Jesus into their preconceived notions of Messiah instead of submitting to him in the way that he has come on his terms. And Jesus, if you notice, drives home this point as the passage continues, and he issues to them a call. And we really see that there 
in verses 35 through 37. And notice how the call that he issues is in this example of a child. It says he, put a, he, he took a child and put him in the midst of him. You know, we, might, we might wonder what's going on here. Is Jesus <clears throat> like a mall Santa? You know, puts the child on his lap and, you know, here's the wish list. Or is he just being like the cool uncle at dinner who, you know, is good with the kids and like, what, what exactly is going on? Well, we, see, we, we, we think this way because in our day, children are revered. And so to, 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 to be with one is, that's, that's your, your duty. That's, that's your privilege. Children are thought of as cute and adorable and, and fun-loving. They're, they're in commercials which sell products. If you watch the Super Bowl this uh, season... Uh, there was the, um, there you go, the restart of the uh, E-Trade babies. You notice, I don't know if you saw that commercial. They had this wildly successful campaign for E-Trade where you can, stocks and so forth. Well, the E-Trade baby came back, which is like this very cute commercial where a baby talks. And Well, again, that's, that's our culture. Children are revered. They're coddled even, lavished upon, private schools, travel sports teams, all of these things. But in the first century, it's a completely different world. In the first century, for starters, there's a high mortality rate. And so children are, in a sense, almost an afterthought. They might not even make it to maturity. They're marginalized. They're, they're second class, viewed even at times like property. This idea of women and children first, we hear that phrase. That's a, that's a modern phrase, not a, not a first century Mediterranean world Phrase. And so when Jesus here is searching, if you will, for an example of what it looks like to be humble and selfless and sacrificial and generous and all-giving, in other words, what does it look like to embody the selflessness of God himself in Christ? It looks like Christ the king. It looks like Christ, yes, the monarch, but not how they expect it. It looks like Christ, the true monarch, making time for even the most insignificant, marginalized, written-off person. A child. A child. The example here and the force of it is not the child itself, but it's Jesus who welcomes him. Who welcomes the least of these, like he does throughout all of his ministry. And then calls his disciples, calls us to the same posture and position in return. This is the call of the Christian faith. Notice again that contrast. The disciples are jockeying for who's the greatest. And then here Jesus, who is the greatest, God incarnate, the one high lifted up, is so humble as to welcome a child. You see, we understand who we are in comparison to God, and we understand what this God did for us in welcoming us then we understand the call upon our lives to embody that same selfless love and welcome towards others wherever he has placed us. And so again, how about you and I this morning? How about us today? Ask yourself this question during Lent. Where in our lives are we like the disciples at the beginning of this passage? Deferring to ourselves, thinking first of ourselves and our status, losing sight of Christ's sacrifice, 
thinking that we're the big shots, we're the kingdom superstars, we're the ones worthy at his right and left hand, we're the members of a royal court, and so we should get whatever we want. Again, our desires, our lusts, our appetites. Who is to forbid someone who sits on the royal court? Well, again, if we think that way, that's the lie that goes all the way back to the garden. Did God really say you can't eat of the tree? Look at it. How could he do that to you? How could he deprive you of that? How could he not want you to enjoy that, to satisfy your own appetite and desire and lust? What is that? That's Fat Tuesday thinking. That's the history of Fat Tuesday, if you don't know, right? The day before Ash Wednesday, what do you do? You get everything out. All the lusts, all the desires, all the appetites. You satisfy yourself one more time, right? Before Lent comes. That's Fat Tuesday. Thinking writ large, so to speak. But Jesus wants the disciples to see in the economy of grace, we're not big shots. We're like the child. We're helpless. And we're dependent. We're of low stature. We are ever at the need of our gracious Father. Think of our call to confession. We look to the hand of our master like a servant looks to the hand of their master. That's who we are. We're like the child. But it's Jesus who came to provide at great cost to himself. Paul writes in Philippians, and we read this last week, but I remind you again, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient at the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You see, when we realize that, Lent reminds us that Fat Tuesday thinking becomes Ash Wednesday thinking. It becomes Lent thinking, which is if Jesus gave up all for me, that I could be redeemed and welcomed. Then nothing is too big or too significant for me to give up for him that he might be worshipped that we might be freer, that our lives might be fuller, again, to his glory and to the good of our souls. So what is it for you and what is it for me? What is God calling us to lay at his feet this morning? You know, maybe you gave up chocolate for Lent or wine or fried food, and that's Fine, that's good on a surface level. It embodies at least the spirit, so to speak, of, of Lent. But allow the surface level to go deeper. 
into your spirit. And what are we called to lay at Christ's feet? If you've never given your life to Jesus in faith at all, well then, of course, it starts there, doesn't it? Acknowledging your sin and your need of saving, trusting in his life, death, and resurrection, saving, saying, have mercy on me, O God, I'm a sinner. Giving our lives to him first in faith, in full trust and assurance of our salvation. But for those of us who have already done that, and I imagine that's most of, if not all of us this morning, for those of us who have already done that, then what part of our lives do we still clutch? We may readily trust Jesus as Savior, but what part of our life do we still refuse to give him as Lord? Remember, not, not co-pilot, but pilot. We trust Jesus as Savior, but what part of our lives do we still hold back from him at times as Lord? His Lordship. Is it our finances? Is it our marriage? Our business? Our worries? Is it our fears or our habits? Again, a deeper, more spiritual level to ask ourselves this season of Lent. For when we do that, when we, to, to, to borrow another Christian bumper sticker, when we let go and let God, but in a good sense, okay, I don't, like, I don't love that either, but it needs to be nuanced further, okay, but when we let go and let God, so to speak, what happens? we give all of ourselves over to when we let go of ourselves and give wholly unto God what happens well we find like the disciples who eventually get there themselves who eventually let go of their incorrect view of the Messiah and embrace the true Jesus and his gospel we find that their lives weren't smaller weren't disappointed but they were bigger and brighter and fuller and more abundant. And the same is true for us this season. When we give more of ourselves in response to what God has already given, more of ourselves unto God, we find the same, that our lives are bigger and brighter and fuller and more congruent with the God who has saved us. G.K. Chesterton has that wonderful quote, which I love. Oh, how much bigger your life would be if you were only the smaller in it. You see, that's the Lent call, to find ourselves smaller, if you will, because Christ is more, because Christ is larger in our lives. May that be true of us this season. We'll close with this great reminder from the great hymn, All to Jesus I surrender. All to thee I freely give. I will ever love and trust you in your presence daily live. All to Jesus I surrender. Lord, I give myself to thee. Fill me with your love and power. Let your blessing fall on me. All to Jesus I surrender. Now I feel the sacred flame. Oh, the joy of full salvation. Glory, glory to your name. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you for who you are and what you have done for us. We thank you for Christ, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, born of woman, born under the law, 
And the fullness of time came to redeem us, that we might be adopted as sons and daughters, again, into your family and right standing because of his work. And Father, we thank you for the word as it's written, the word of Holy Scripture that points us to that word made flesh. Father, this morning, through the power of your spirit, would you have convicted us, we pray, where that was necessary. But would you also have encouraged us where that was required. That again, in all ways, our lives would be increasingly conformed, congruent to Jesus, the one who has done it all, the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.